Hi there. Thanks for inviting me onto your computer for the next hour and change. I'm Josh. Dharma Punks NYC doing it in person the first Tuesday of February, Tuesday at 7 p.m. If you find these gatherings worthwhile and would like to support my work, which everything is done entirely by donation. Venmo is Dharma Punks with an XNYC. The rest of the links for PayPal and for Patreon can be found on our website, which is dharmapunksnyc.com. So uh, thanks for helping me survive as a Buddhist teacher who does everything entirely by donation. Tonight, I have a kind of info-packed, a talk that will require all of our brain cells to be firing all at once because there's a lot of information in it. I'm going to jump right in, and the talk is basically going to be about how we go about perceiving the world around us, other people and ourselves. We're also going to be talking a little bit about how we change those perceptions of our lives. Our brains perceive the world via two distinct kind of processes. And while they're, um, they influence each other and they must work together, they're very different in the way they go about constructing our sense of subjective reality that we live in. So one kind of process starts with a bunch of predictions or what we could call guesses about what's happening around us, in us, with other people, just guesses, predictions. And then it actually narrows down to integrate actual info coming through our senses from the outside world. This is what's called top-down processing. The brain already has a sense or a belief about what's going on in the world and just looks for some smatterings of or filters out most of the data and just looks for some specific details to round out the picture. Now, conversely, you can probably guess that the other process works the exact opposite way where we begin with actual sensory perception or some impressions of what's of the world, that is sight, sounds, touch, smell, etc. These stimuli get turned into uh, representations in the brain. And then from this actual data that we get from our, our senses, we then build up to create a model of what's going on in the world. That's called bottom-up, and that's a very different approach to how to construct reality. One is you start with a guess or an interpretation, then you just look for the information to refine your guess. The other is you start with actual, I guess you could call them facts or uh, subjective data, and then from that, you build up to create an interpretation of what's going on, an idea about what's happening in any situation. So top down, bottom up. And uh, 
I'm going to talk first about top-down, then about bottom-up, and hopefully I'll make a compelling case why both are important and why it's worthwhile understanding both. Top-down perceptions of the world are, as I said, formed by expectations, guesses, or what we might call mental models about how the world works, what's going on around us, uh, uh how others will act, how we should act in a situation, uh, what our goals should be. Now, you might say, why do we need to guess about what's going on around us? Can't we just see? Well, uh, to put it mildly, that's not the way the brain works. Um, you see, my brain, your brain, everybody's brain are organs essentially housed in black boxes known as skulls, and they don't actually have any direct access to anything that's going on in the world outside. All these organs receive are electrical signals traveling up neurons or, you know, neural circuits that arrive to the brain, but the brain basically has to interpret. It doesn't actually have any windows out into the world or any sound inputs. All that happens when a sight arrives is that some light hits retinal cells that goes up the optical nerve, and it has to be interpreted. So it's a very slow process. And sometimes uh, also to save all that processing, we just start with a informed guess based on all of our other experiences about what's going on. So Models essentially start with a depiction of the world based on previous experiences from the past. Obviously, that's what previous means. And it limits the raw sensory data coming in from our environment, choosing which info eventually to allow in to refine its interpretation. So let me give you an example. Maybe this will make it clear because it sounded a little abstract at first. When I open the front door to my apartment, my brain doesn't wait for the light reflecting off furniture to reach the retinal cells and then travel up the optic nerve to the thalamus and then the occipital lobe and then be turned into through all these processes into a, a representation of my kitchen. Uh, actually, what happens is when I open the door, my brain presents to me a model based on all the other times in my life I've seen my kitchen. It doesn't wait for the actual stimuli to come in. It's already got a mental model in place that says kitchen. And then after I walk around my kitchen for a while, uh, maybe some stimuli comes in notifying me that changes have happened, and I refine the image of my kitchen. I remember once, many years ago, at least a decade ago, I was working late at night on a talk, and stupidly I left my laptop on the kitchen table. Uh, <laughs> the next morning, somebody had reached in the window and stole it, so, but was what was interesting is I woke up that morning, I just walked around my kitchen, didn't even perceive that the laptop was gone. It just saw the model of my kitchen and didn't notice that something had changed. My brain never bothered to update. So we're very often living in these models 
of the way the world we believe should be rather than taking in the information that actually shows us the changes or the, uh, yeah, the uh, shifting and uh, movement that's happening in the world around us. So another example of top-down processing is if I get a text from a friend and um, the text is ambiguous, I don't know if it's positive or critical, rather than go on my base emotional response, which is bottom-up, I actually will use my knowledge of this person and all the experiences from the past and predict that the message is not critical, that it's positive, and I just have to come up with an interpretation that is based on all the uh, millions of, or, you know, thousands of communications we've had in the past. Uh, another example of top-down is um, you're in a crowded restaurant, and you're talking with a friend, and there's all this noise in the background. What happens is to focus on the conversation you're having, the top-down models have to say all of the other stimuli, all the other noises, all the other conversations by other customers, the clinking of glasses, all the din of the the restaurant is not important. Just focus in on this one small stream of stimuli. So again, that's your top-down processes of your brain. They start out with what's important, and they only look for a certain amount of stimuli, and everything else doesn't get included. So um, models that are developed from our childhood uh, during repeated patterns of interactions with our caregivers form very rigid and enduring mental models that are very resistant to change because they're stored in non-conscious circuits of the brain. And that's why attachment, uh, how we how we act in relationships and our core beliefs about how safe we are, are so resistant to change, why they take so many, many, many years of work to change them, because these are models that are stored not accessible to the conscious part of top-down processing. They're in the unconscious part of top-down. They're in the frontal lobe, but the part of the frontal lobe, the right frontal lobe that we're not consciously aware of. But these models, for instance, suppose you grew up in a childhood where your caregivers were There was a sudden divorce and one caregiver no longer was available except on every other weekend. And then for you, that defined love and attachment as being with a figure that is not reliably available. And that emotional belief will be stored in an unconscious region of your brain. But when it comes to selecting partners, you will be guided towards people who are not emotionally available because that top-down model is filtering what stimuli you become aware of. So you'll only respond to the people that repeat that pattern of abandonment. Another example is um, a happier one. Our top-down models in our brain are trained to and are genetically predisposed to look for faces in any oval shape. 
So when people look at abstract art, they're prone to see faces where there are none because our top-down models constantly are looking for faces. If you're interested in this, uh, there's a great cognitive neuroscientist, Donald Hoffman, who's written books about how skewed our top-down perceptions can be, but also uh, how uh, influential they are. Uh, another thing to mention about top-down is that they can be what's called counterfactual. They're not always based on actual experiences from the past. When we have goals or dreams for the future or fantasies, these are these are models that are based entirely on imagination. And these can be very influential too. Suppose you have a model in your head of wanting to be successful and you have a very rigid, what we would call counterfactual image in your mind of what, what designates success, how you define success. And then suppose you have a perfectly fine uh, life where you're self-sufficient, you are um, you're happy, you're creative. But if that model of success has created an image that's too rarefied, too demanding, then you might perceive yourself to be a failure, even though you're doing all right. You're doing great even. you. But simply because that model, that top-down model defining what success looks like is in no way... Um, matching your actual life, you'll feel something is wrong, even though there's absolutely nothing wrong with your life. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about this in a while. So again, top-down processing is where we start out with beliefs, uh, pictures of the world, and then we decide what information we're going to let in. Like we're in the restaurant, we let in the conversation with our friend, we keep everything else out. There's lots of implications, and I'll talk about it in a little while, what, what happens when we don't have enough top-down processing. But let's talk a moment about bottom-up, which is the exact opposite. It's when we have processes that don't begin with pre-existing models of what's going on around us, but they're actually shaped by waiting for the raw sensory data to arrive and be... Uh, worked on by the occipital temporal lobes, the parietal lobe, et cetera. And then finally, uh, the stimuli comes in and our brain uh, starts building an interpretation from this raw sensory stimuli. So we're actually working with, act with our data rather than just a guess. So this um, type of process is always happening just like top-down is always happening. But top-down, we're much more aware of, whereas bottom-up processing, we're almost never aware of. It's just these immediate processing of stimuli and pushing the most important up towards the frontal lobe. Now, sometimes this kind of bottom-up processing can dominate. Uh, suppose you're in on a hiking trail and everything looks the same. And then suddenly you turn a bend and there's this amazing, beautiful vista, a canyon with um, 
trees and mountains and you can see suddenly for uh, miles and it's a wonderful vista with birds flying and it's an awe-inspiring view well in that case when a surprising situation a novel situation occurs the the stimuli is so vastly different from our top-down model what we expected to see that all the information pushes out and we, in those situations, we experience what is called surprise. Suddenly we freeze, we stop, because we're experiencing something that our brain never expected to experience. And in those situations, the raw sensory data is just flooding us. We can't really think because that's top down. We can't really speak. We're in a state of awe. And we experience that not just with amazing views, but also with transcendent music or art, or even when we visit very foreign locations in different companies, countries where the way of life is very different. Well, not <laughs> these novel situations that cause bottom-up processing are not only uh, wonderful, sometimes they can be absolutely terrible. Um, in 9-11, as a lifelong New Yorker, I was going to work. Somebody said, oh, the World Trade Center has been hit by a plane. I was stunned, and I didn't really have an, an image in my mind of what that would look like. I went up, and then there I was, standing with a straight view of it on University Place, looking at both World Trade Centers on fire before they collapsed, and it was a what we would call a uh you know just a traumatic vision but it was so it broke off all of my mental models of what i would see when i looked downtown it was something like out of a horror film so i was stuck in a freeze state just looking at this and absolutely incapable of knowing what to do. That's what happens when bottom-up processes um, uh, take control of us. We experience four uh, conditions, flight, fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. And in that situation, I was very much in a kind of a freeze. And then I was in a kind of just kind of almost a shocked state where I felt like I was walking in a daze because now nothing, when your mental models of the world are ripped apart by a traumatic event, now nothing in the world seems real. All of your mental models are struggling to build and come back online when you've seen something that's so shocking. So um, in threatening overwhelming systems, uh, core emotional responses, fight, flight, freeze, fawn, from subcortical regions of the brain can take control of us, override our mental models of what, how to behave, and they will guide us to safety without any of the socializing skills. There was a wonderful film, Force Majeure, that came out several years ago, highly recommend it, 
about a family on vacation when an avalanche happens and one of the characters just flees for their life uh, and doesn't take into consideration the rest of the family. And the thing about that is it's a wonderful depiction of even though we can have these top-down expectations about how we should act and these and inhibit most of the time our bottom-up survival impulses, once in a while the bottom up uh, the events around us are so startling that the bottom up processes during traumas just take control and say, I'm out of here. So um, it can take a while before the top down socializing, regulating, inhibiting uh, models take back control. And that's what's called PTSD. When someone has had a trauma, they've been locked into bottom-up processing. They're in constant threat detection. And no matter how much they try to inhibit the anxiety or panic, it's flooding up from the base of the amygdala up to consciousness. So the emotional state we're in can very much change the way we interpret the world. If I'm walking home late at night and uh, it's dark and uh, I hear footsteps behind me moving closer, I'll interpret that sound in that situation very differently than if it was in daylight and I was very relaxed. If I'm running late for an appointment and someone on the street stops to uh ask for directions i'll interpret them as an obstacle but if i have if i'm not late if i'm relaxed and taking my time then when somebody comes up and asks for directions i'm invariably you know relaxed and polite and i'll either case i'll give them directions but in one case i'll be exasperated in the other i'll be relaxed and far more happy to stop and uh help them find where they're going this is one of the reasons why we have so much suffering when the bottom-up regions of the brain have decided that we're under threat and we're in an anxiety state. Those bottom-up processes from our body, the racing heartbeat, the tight stomach, the jumpy attention, pushes its way up and takes control of our top-down processing and creates what's called catastrophizing thoughts. So it takes a while for people to get out of those anxious states and for old, more relaxed, confident models of the world to return. So again, it's worth understanding that uh, these bottom-up processes, which are known as fight, flight, freeze, fawn, are very important for survival, but sometimes they're based on very old information. We're perfectly safe, yet we'll have these responses based on being triggered and it's our top-down models that inhibit those responses and allow us to relax so all that goes to say that top-down and bottom-up processes have to work together if we don't integrate both smoothly things go awry very quickly if we're at a party uh or let's i already talked about the party um, example where we're tuning out most uh, noise, but just focusing on one. If we don't have enough attention, we wouldn't be able to tune out anything. Uh, as we plan our day, we use top-down 
uh, information. But if we're walking to work, we use bottom-up processes, staying aware of what's going on around us while we're lost in thought. If we're driving in a rainstorm uh, and our view is obscured of other cars and the road, we'll be using bottom-up uh, images, but we'll also our top down models of the way of the route that we've traveled before will help guide us safely home. Classic example is jigsaw puzzles. When you're doing a jigsaw puzzle, your top-down brain, no, having an image of the overall image in its mind, and what will to, will have an image in its mind of what the missing piece will look like. And then your bottom-up processes actually sorts through all of the pieces and finds the correct one that matches that model in your mind. But what? let's look at some examples of what can go wrong. Um, body dysmorphia and anorexia are involved top-down beliefs, uh, especially emotional beliefs, that someone believes they're unattractive, unlovable, and those beliefs override all the incoming data of how they actually look. And all they'll see is someone that they believe looks unappealing and they'll continue and to uh, engage in the kind of maladaptive practices that uh, change their body shape needlessly. Anxiety disorders and catastrophizing expectations a result when, um, again, bottom-up impulses take control of our thinking and we can't inhibit them. In ADHD, the, our frontal lobes don't have enough dopamine and adrenaline to inhibit the bottom-up stimuli, looking for distractions, threats, and so forth. So we won't be able to pay attention. We'll constantly be vulnerable to any new sound, any new sensation, and our addictive bottom-up qualities will come and take control of our brain. In dyslexia, on the other hand, is when top-down executive function is not strong enough and it can't actually render the raw data of of letter shapes into words correctly. And uh, schizophrenia is what happens when there's poor integration of top-down and bottom-up processing and that creates visual and auditory distortions. So a lot rides in us being able to constantly update our models while integrating new information. Um, when we're young, our brains are building up from scratch our mental models of the world via thousands upon thousands of interactions. And it's the parents' job to instill the socializing uh, models of how to behave. When we age, as we get older, we rely more and more and more on top-down beliefs about how the world works. And over time, we can let in less and less information of what's actually going on around us. We'll only see what we want to see. The Buddha talked a lot about this. He broke down our internal experience into bottom-up processes like body sensations and vitaka, which are the 
core emotional reactions to stimuli versus top-down, which were sana, our mental models, and sankaras, our beliefs and goals. And um, the Buddha also noted that uh, he said there's two main qualities of mind. Manas was when the mind is caught up by its rigid ideas and beliefs. Chitta, on the other hand, was the opposite. The mind, what he called the heart mind, where bottom-up actual sensations and stimuli are dominating our perceptions, the far more emotional. And the Buddha's first teaching in the one of the most important texts, the Dhammapada, said, the mind precedes all experience and perceptions. The mind is the chief it creates all that we ever experience with an impure mind with when one speaks or acts suffering will follow like a cart follows uh, an ox and he called in a teaching called yonisa manasikara which is seeing things the way they really are to stop and to override the imp imposition of all of our old expectations and find a way to allow new, fresh uh, data from the world to be integrated into the mind. And the older we become, the more and more important this process is. Because if we don't have a way of stopping, pulling ourselves from the screens, disconnecting from our thoughts, a way to detach from those mental models, then what will happen is we'll never be able to adapt to the world as it changes. We'll never be able to keep up, to learn new tools. We'll never be able to <clears throat> interpret and, um, and essentially build new beliefs. So Yonisa Manasakura, seeing things the way they are, involved stopping and paying sustained attention on pure sensory stimuli without any beliefs or experience from the past. And this, another word for this is, of course, mindfulness. And he said, from an inappropriate attention, one's world is chewed up by their thoughts. Uh, one only relinquishes delusion by putting aside this kind of overthinking, over-reliance on our beliefs and actually stop and actually contemplate the actual experience that's happening. So finally, what's going to be, I think, the most important reflection of this whole talk is the self, our sense of who we are. In the Anatta Lakana Sutta, the Buddha noted that the more you stop and really pay attention to your inner experience, you see this flowing, changing, shifting landscape of, of feelings and sensations and models arising and passing and emotions and shifting states of alertness. And what we begin to experience is that this idea that we have a personality that's static or an identity or any kind of core self that defines us is an illusion. And 
that might sound very surprising, but it's been entirely, completely validated by contemporary neuroscience and psychology. Um, we experience the sense that there's a self, but it's an illusion that our conch that our top-down models create because it needs to have an illusion or a sense that there's something in us that's making our choices, that's controlling how we act. But that's actually what's called counterfactual. It's not true. <clears throat> there's countless different circuits of the brain, most of which are bottom up and entirely unconscious, which are generally driving how we behave and act in most situations. And for instance, motor impulses and speech acts are always started by bottom-up impulses and only sometimes inhibited by our top-down. We're far more react reactive to actual situations and contexts and relying on bottom-up survival impulses to act than we believe. But because consciousness needs to believe that it's running the show, it creates the sense that there's a self or an identity or a personality that's actually choosing how we act. And we assign that to thoughts. We believe that thoughts are the the top-down experience that's guiding everything. And of course, contemporary neuroscience has definitively shown that thoughts arrive far too late, well after behaviors have been instigated, well after uh, emotions have been activated, well after, uh, I you know, responses have begun. Um, essentially, the idea that our thoughts are controlling the show is... Uh, like the old example of the monkey and the elephant, the monkey believes it's steering the elephant, but it's not. So the idea that we choose how to act in most situations is an illusion created by top-down models because top-down models, which dominate consciousness, really need to believe that they're very important. So our top-down perceptual systems spend an enormous amount of energy and processing to create this illusion of there's some me or I in there uh, running the show. And unfortunately, it would be great if it was a big bonus. But for a lot of our lives, our sense of um, the thinking that this creates about this entirely non-existent element uh, the thinking about ourselves, how we're doing, uh, what other people think about us, all of that stuff is simply top-down processing, wasting an enormous amount of energy fantasizing about something that doesn't exist in the first place. So it's limiting. And it's not just limiting because it generates a whole lot of painful thoughts about about a self that it's created and that doesn't exist, but sometimes it can limit us needlessly. I was once in a yoga class and a student in the class said to the teacher, I can't do pigeon pose. Pigeon pose is a famous yoga asana. 
And the teacher said, that's okay. Why don't you just um, put one foot back and the other foot, you know, the other leg folded just in front of you. And then why don't you just begin to lower your torso towards the front foot? And the student did it. And then she said, you're in pigeon pose. But the student's model of what she could do told her that she couldn't do it. She had a mental model that she was far more limited in her mobility than she actually was. So there's some very important uh, cognitive scientists today, Ruben Laconin and Helen Slogter, amongst many others, that, um, and they wrote a paper called From Many to None, Meditation and the Predictive Mind. And basically what they show is that the state of meditation is where we reduce all of the imposition of our top-down biases. We deconstruct the predictive mind and we allow for more flexible, creative, rich integration of non-evaluative bottom-up perceptions, the, the actual sights, sounds, feelings, body sensations as they're happening. And this trait of meditation is so beneficial because it allows us not only to take a break from and develop new models of the world, but uh, it loosens up our reliance on our over-reliance as we age on top-down processing. We can if we meditate, we can once again be able to take in the sights, sounds, sensations around us. We become more accurate in our appraisal of others and less dismissive or less relating to people based on what we expect them to act versus how they actually are acting. It reconstructs our world and makes it far more accurate, wholesome. It allows us to be compassionate and generous. So that's the talk. And what we're going to do is an actual meditation that the Buddha did, the Anatta Lakana, where he showed that we actually don't have a, an actual self that's guiding uh, how we act, behave, and so forth, that it's actually just an ongoing flow. And this meditation was the meditation that led to the first enlightenments in the Buddhist teachings. It was said that up until this teaching, he was, when he taught this, he was surrounded by a group of people who instantly became enlightened because they saw through the bogus predictive models of who they were and saw the truth that there was anatta, no defined, lasting, rigid self. So thanks for listening and find a really comfortable position for your meditation. So taking a nice full breath in. And out. And just allowing, we're actually lassoing your attention 
and reeling it back into your body. And if we want to build a new model from the bottom up of what's going on, there's no better place to start than with the sensations that are actually closest to us, our internal sensations of our body. So just find as a place to land awareness, a set of really comfortable sensations, wherever you can find them. They might be behind your eyes or the palms of your hands. They might be somewhere in your belly or in your sternum. And just see if you can lower your attention to where it's now in the seat of your belly. And just see if you can, as you breathe in, feel into the abdomen expanding and the energy moving up towards your chest. And when the in-breath reaches its apex, then just as you breathe out and feel energy being released, muscles relaxing, and the energy in the body flowing back down to the belly. So the breath becomes akin to waves coming to shore and then retreating away. The wave coming to shore is the in-breath. The wave receding from shore, your out-breath. And find a place where you can reside your attention. It's kind of like a boat 
blowing or floating on top those sensations as the waves move in the boat drifts a little toward shore and as the waves recede the boat drifts away so if you keep your attention somewhere around the sternum or the top of the belly you might Notice the energy moving up and down. And try to cultivate a breath where the waves of inhalation and exhalation are slow, restful, nothing rushed. And just for a little while, just sit with the breathing and without any judgment when your attention roams. Just when you realize you've drifted away, just bring your attention back to the waves. You can just think in with the in-breath and out the out-breath or recite in your mind, may I be happy, peaceful, free of suffering when you breathe in. As you breathe out, may all beings be happy, peaceful, free of suffering.
So just bring your attention to the core sensations of your body, along with any sounds arriving. And with this kind of bottom-up attention, just note if there's any sensation in your body that is absolutely static and doesn't change. Or if the sensations either quickly or slowly are constantly mutable, arising and passing or shifting in their intensity. And now become aware of just the basic feeling states of comfort, discomfort, being relaxed, anxious, distracted, Tentive. Just note the basic settings of our emotions. Are they also subject to change, also shifting?
bring attention to the thoughts arising and passing without any need to control, just observe, detached, and know, do your thoughts change? Are they shifting? Perspective, views. Now, if you've noticed that body sensations and feelings and thoughts are subject to constant change, morphing, that they don't stay the same, if there's anything I haven't included that you believe in some way is indicative of your core self, your identity, Pay attention to that quality and see if that's changing. Again, this is a bottom-up practice, we're just observing our experience without any beliefs or expectations imposed upon what we experience. We're just taking it in. No judgments. We're like scientists exploring our internal experience. And the only thing we're looking for 
is whether there's something that creates a sense of identity that also doesn't change. So at this point, we're going to wrap up this uh, practice based on 2,500-year-old Anatta Lakana Sutta.